Hi friends, I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Banger Happy Hour. We are returned. Discussing the fourth story in the Robots vs. Fairies anthology, The Blue Fairies Manifesto by Annalie Newitz. Then we'll be revisiting the media we're excited for in the first quarter of the year to see if we did the thing. And then we'll share the media we're excited for in this quarter. We'll round it off with a discussion of A Wrinkle in Time, directed by Ava Dornay, and then do some ricks. Welcome back to our read-along of the Saga Press anthology, Robots vs. Fairies. You can get the anthology anytime and join in with us in reading all the stories. This week we read The Blue Fairies Manifesto by Annalie Newitz. Newitz wrote 2017's Autonomous, which was weird and vaguely dystopic, so I was curious to see what kind of short fiction about robots she would write. I can finally, finally give a robot story one of my coveted points. Because I liked this one. But you had a different perspective. Yes, I didn't like it. Was there anything in it that you found? I guess I liked the writing. It was well written. I liked the the way that the story builds the perspective of the the narrator. Which was really interesting because then suddenly the robot becomes conscious in a way that it wasn't before. And that limitation is, I think, really well developed in the way that the robot narrates the story. Probably the reason that I like this story is because, like, right now I'm in the middle of primary politics for the midterm elections in the U.S. I meet a lot of people like that fucking blue fairy. I meet a lot of those. I am real boy. Even though I'm a socialist, which here in red country, deep south, Arkansas... You get people who will yell at you, be like, "That's socialism." I'm like, "Yeah, and so is your fucking road, you asshole." When with his as with their trucks and their truck nuts as they drive away from you angrily. Sorry, tangent. But as I read the story, I was like, "Wow, real boy, this fairy is a bad fucking influence. You need to get away from them right now." And I just tried to say the words "fairy" and "fucking" at the same time and came up with "flucking." Great, fucking fairies. But it was also a robot. And I liked that she took the theme and sort of combined it. And I think I liked that about Shannon McGuire's story, too. No, but hold on. But the fairy wasn't a fairy. No, it wasn't. He was just a robot in the shape of a fairy. Okay. Uh, for a second, I thought, oh, my God, did I did I not understand the story? Oh, phew. <laughs> no, Annie, you understood the story. Don't worry. Because I am coming from the perspective of real boy, as soon as this fairy is trying to convince Real Boy that he needs to, like, burn it all down. I was like, Real Boy, it's time to exit this conversation. But was that really what the fairy wanted? The fairy was an anarchist. The fairy wanted, like, all this super radical change without considering the people who were going to be hurt as they created that radical change. Both people and robots. Because when you create like super radical change, you sort of leave behind people and or robots who have the least. You sort of end up not taking into account their circumstances. Yeah, but if the circumstances are such in which the robots are effectively slaves, 
What else can you do apart from liberate the slaves? But are they slaves if they don't have sentience? Because the very gave real boy the sentience, or at least a form of consciousness, because in this world it seems like there's different levels, because before the Blue Fairy, real boy was friends with this other bot in the factory where he worked. So I would say that they do. That I think that was the point. I think that they, they, do, they did have sentience. They had like a limited form of it. Exactly, which was set up by the owners. I'm definitely the person who was like, let's build a consensus and work together and give people choices. Because in this scenario, the Blue Fairy is like, we're gonna, I'm going to force this choice on all these robots and then you guys are going to help me like change the world and take, take things over. And we're, gonna be, we're all going to be free. Real Boy wasn't given the choice. As Real Boy thinks about things and logics through it, they go, well, you know what? I wasn't given this choice. And I don't really like I don't really like your position, dude. So guess what? I'm not on your team. But effectively, isn't he choosing on behalf of the other robots when he decides that this is the way that he's going to do, which he can only do because he's awakened. I know, it's very thorny. You want to change your whole life. And maybe you didn't get to have the choice to change your life specifically. But you do have a choice to how you impact other lives. It kind of becomes like this metaphor for public service in a way, where you have to kind of think through the implications of what it means to have a choice. I just thought there was a lot of interesting political discussion on top of like the cool SF conceit of robot sentience happening in the story which is why i liked it but you didn't like it i just want to know why there was something that didn't sit right with me it's impossible to take such a subject and then have only two sides of it and i I thought maybe that was very limiting because i felt like there were only two ways of looking at things and i didn't quite agree with any of those I just wanted all the, all the robots freed. I think maybe if I had to choose someone to be, I think I would totally be the blue fairy. I would be the centrist liberal and you would be the anarchist. It's like everything on fucking fire and liberate everybody. I've tried the fire approach and basically it has mostly resulted in heartache. Yeah, I can see that too. I'm not sure I'm like that in real life, I guess. I'm more like that when I'm reading something. Maybe it's wish fulfillment fantasy. Yeah, but you're also not embroiled in politics like I am, where like I live and breathe it these days. And I see the benefits of a consensus system where you bring everybody with you who wants to come, who really wants to be there, and you get more done than if you just be like, okay, guess what? We're all doing this now. I just find Newitz's work on sentience and politics super fascinating. Did you ever end up reading Autonomous? I tried and I couldn't get into it at all. Yeah, I've heard that. The book is marketed in a really specific way. So when I read about it, I was like, yes, I'm here for this. But then when I read the actual text, it was a really, really different and darker and more cynical than I was expecting. I don't think the book copy like really makes that clear because it's pretty dark. And I found this story kind of dark in some ways, too where you have this society that is giving mechs, bots, robots, whatever you want to call them, semi-sentience, and then having them do a bunch of work. I just couldn't stop myself from extrapolating that from robots to human beings. And if they were human beings in that same position, I think the conversation would have been different. And I guess then at the end of the day is how much do we think as sentient robots as humans and should we even think of them as that and if not why not 
it's a very meaty, complex topic. And maybe a short story isn't sufficient to tackle it. It's a good introduction, but then you're left with, oh shit, I have this philosophical quarantine that I'm stuck in. What do I do? There's no story left to resolve it for me. It, it may mean that the story actually really works, but I don't know. I was left wondering too much. Unrelated to that is that I wanted to know what type of body Real Boy had because Real Boy was in a factory and Blue Fairy gave them sentience and Real Boy built a body and then left the factory to go lay in a park, which I don't know if you noticed, but the way the park was described by Real Boy, it was very small. So how the fuck big was Real Boy? Oh. What did that robot look like? I could never get a good visual. And every time I tried to picture something, I was like, it was a transformer. It was massive. <laughs> Is Blue Fairy going around giving full sentience to gigantic robots so Blue Fairy can like take over the world with giant robots? Possibly. The thing about the park just really caught my eye. I'm like, how small would this park be? Is in the future are parks like three by three or something? Is it like the Parks and Rec episode where they make this tiny little corner park? I don't understand. <laughs> but yes, I really did like the story. I thought it had a lot of interesting things to think about and talk about. And also I see a lot of myself in this situation. Fair. So I'm really glad that I liked the robot story, Anna. I'm really glad for you, I guess. I'm not giving any marks to robots to this story. Sorry. I wanted to have liked it. Obviously, we don't really go into things wanting to hate them unless we're like rereading through the eyes. We should start making a list of how many times can we throw shade through the eyes. We're going to hell for mocking the work of a 15-year-old boy. We're going straight to hell. God. Anyway, Space Bees, if you're reading along with us, let us know what you thought of the Blue Fairies Manifesto. Did you like it? Did you find the same things I did? Or are you going to side with Anna on this one and leave me behind? <laughs> Hashtag emotional manipulation. Oh my god. One of our mini brands here at Finger Happy Hour is Lists. Back in February, we talked about media we were looking forward to in the first quarter, and now we're back to see how we did. We're also back to make a new list for the second quarter because we got to stay on brand. What were your Q1 items and which ones did you get to? Let me start by saying that I failed. I'm so sad about it. Wait, did you at least get through one of them? I did. Then you did not fail. 20% 20% is an okay mark. For this assignment, yes. Okay. So I have 40% because I got through two. Go me. So my list had Black Panther, which we both really loved. I also read Obsidio by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff, which is the trilogy ender to the Illuminate Files. Have you read that yet? I have. It's great. Wasn't it great? That is one of my favorite SF series. It was so good, so good. And the romance in these books were so good. The, I think the only thing that I was a little bit disappointed is that there were three books, three couples, plenty of opportunity to have some queers there. It was pretty much all rote hetero- heterosexuality. Yeah. And the other three that I had on my list that I didn't get around to reading were Paris Adrift by E.J. Swift, The Bells by Danielle Clayton, and Space Opera by Catherine M. Valente. I actually did try reading Space Opera. I had problems with it. 
the setup was amazing and I love Valente's writing, but I thought that the way that this book was written, I don't even know how to describe it. It felt like so exaggerated. Which is the point, because, of course, there's a space opera about Eurovision in space with aliens that come and get this really amazing person and take it to a contest in outer space. The writing fits the theme, but then for me, that have English as a second language, I thought it was really hard for me to read it and understand what was being said to the point where I had to reread sentences to understand what was going on, and I just ended up quitting it. I think it was the same thing that happened with Palimpsest too. I was sad about that. And I know that people have loved this book so much. It was just really hard for me to get into. English is one of those languages. And you would think that I know so many words, but apparently not in all combinations and permutations. Yeah, when people play with language, especially English, which has so many exceptions and weird aspects to it, because we've borrowed from everybody, then it becomes really hard to read. I also struggle with Lindsay's writing sometimes when she is extra flowery. I loved her in the Night Garden and in the City of Coin and Spice. But even with those books, as much as I love them, a lot of times I was having to reread. And I'm a native speaker, so it's not just you. I'm sorry that you couldn't finish it. I'm sorry, too. What about your list from Q1? My first quarter list was A Wrinkle in Time, which obviously we're going to discuss, which is going to be great. And The Wedding Date by Jasmine Glory, Pacific Rim Uprising, The Heart Forger by Ren Chipeco, and Red Clocks by Zanuzimas. And I'm here to say that A Wrinkle in Time was watched, and I read The Wedding Date, and that was it. Ah! Really? But you've been reading so much. Yeah, but not these books. Okay, and you didn't watch Pacific Rim? No, I didn't watch Pacific Rim because I heard a spoiler, I guess, which I'm not going to say. Don't worry, guys. I was like, "Mm, I'm just going to wait for DVD. I'm sorry, Jumbo Ego. Same. I bet we heard the same spoiler. So the thing about the two books that I didn't get to, The Heart Forger and Red Clocks, I spent the last few months reading a bunch in audio because they were really portable. I could put them on my phone and just listen. I've been doing a bunch of driving, I've been doing a bunch of traveling, and it's just been really nice to just have a book on audio that I could just listen to as well, while I'm in a car, or on a plane, or at home doing like housework. It's, it was just really nice. So then I got these two books, and I actually did get them from the library, and I was just like, oh, I need to sit down and focus on that and read it. But that's not where my headspace has been. So it's not the books at all. It's me and the type of reading I'm doing right now. I'm just very into audiobooks so I can be mobile and moving around. I did read The Wedding Date. I liked it. I gave it three stars. But I didn't love it like I wanted to. And I really think this is because of the fact that the perspective seemed to shift like within scenes, within chapters or something. And I just couldn't handle the way it scene shifted. But I thought it was really well done. I really liked the characters. I really, really liked the fact that there was like a great sister relationship in this book that was not really promoted as part of the book when the marketing was revving up. So I highly recommend that people go out and check this out. So that was my first quarter list. So now switching over to this quarter, what is your list for Q2? I'll be watching more stuff than reading. So I have three watchable things and two books the first one's artificial condition which came out on may 8th and i've had a copy for months and it's the second motherbot novella from martha wells you know how much i loved all systems red so i'm psyched for this one 
The second one is Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Ronhorse, which is a um, she's a Native American writer. Yes, and the book is kind of like urban fantasy, but with uh, Native Americans protagonists, which I don't think I have seen in adult SFF ever. And then I have three movies. First of all, is Deadpool 2. Yay. And the other movie that I want to watch, which is out soon as well, it's The Wasp and Ant-Man. Note that I swapped the order of appearance according to my preference for the characters. And then, of course, I, I haven't watched Jessica Jones yet, and I need to catch up with that. And look, Cage is already coming out. The trailer is super great. Now tell me your list for the second quarter. To start off, I have a book called Ship It by Britta London, which came out on May 1st. It is about a fangirl named Claire and Forrest, who is a rising star on a TV show that I sort of compare in my head to Teen Wolf, which is kind of like trashy supernatural TV. Claire ships Forrest's character on the show with another male character. And at a con, when Claire asks him about it, the actor, Forrest completely refutes it, and it causes a PR nightmare when... Claire and Forrest's exchange goes viral on social media. So the powers that be invite Claire to join the cast on like the rest of their little, little tour thing. And so, and then there's just going to be shenanigans. And also there's apparently a queer romance in here too. So I am very excited for this book. Obviously it's a fandom thing. So of course. Second is Incredibles 2, which comes out on the 15th of June in the U.S. The Incredibles was one of my favorite Pixar films. I haven't loved a Pixar film as much as this one, not even WALL-E or Finding Nemo or Monsters, Inc. This one has like a special place in my heart. This film seems to have a strong family core, which is the thing that I loved about the first one. And also Edna Mode is back, so I am tentatively optimistic that the sequel will hold up. I mean, we may be looking at a Cars 2 situation here, but until I see it, I'm going to reserve judgment. My third one is a book called, Well, That Escalated Quickly, Memoirs and Mistakes of an Accidental Activist by Francesca Ramsey. Francesca Ramsey, if you've heard people who don't know her, is one of my favorite cultural critics. I loved her personal YouTube videos, her decoded series on MTV, and all the snippets of the podcast that she does with her partner. I haven't listened to the podcast proper, but every time I catch a part of one, I'm always cracking up. They're so funny. I know her book is going to be really good. I love her work. She's got a lot of smart things to say. And as a bonus, I'm going to learn a lot. Excellent. Next is Ocean's 8. I liked the Ocean films okay as heist films, but I've never really been invested in them until now. It's like a heist film with ladies. There's so much riding on this. And I know it's part of the Hollywood machine and it won't be perfect. But I'm just so excited that it exists and that Sandra Bullock is one of the main stars because I love her. I love her too. I've loved her since Speed. Miss Congeniality. I love that movie. I rewatched that like a few months ago. It still it holds up. Excellent. This film was written by Gary Ross and Olivia Milch, so I am tentatively, tentatively excited that it won't be like a steaming pile of male gaze. Maybe it will be as good as Ghostbusters. Fingers crossed. And my last choice is The Book of M by Ping Shepherd. The premise of this book is that across the world, people's shadows vanish and with it, their memories. The people who forget after their shadows disappear gain new powers of some kind, but they lose all their connections to the world around them because they can't remember anything. 
This sounds like quality end of the world fiction. And I really hope it is because it's like 500 pages. Oh my God. I can't, I can't commit myself to something that big in my life. And those are my five things. I guess we'll be back in Q3 to be like, hey guys, how do we do? Here is our list of shame. But I'm really, I'm more hopeful about my Q2 list and my Q1 list because I've sort of tailored it to where I'm at right now. Like, is what like what I want to read and watch. Do you know what this book of M reminded me of? No, what? So the connection between shadow and memory is really interesting because it reminded me of Peter Pan. Because Peter Pan, if you remember, his shadow would move separately from him. So it was kind of like not even attached to this body at some point. He also had a problem with memory because he never grew up. A person without memory doesn't grow up because he can't, right? And he kept forgetting Wendy every time he went back for her. He didn't have a memory. And I wonder now the connection between his shadow being so detached from him and him not being having a memory. I just extrapolated from your book to this other book. And I wonder if this author will maybe even mention Peter Pan as an influence. And now I need to read it. It's only 500 pages. Or maybe now I need to wait for you to read it and tell me. <laughs> God, I hated Peter Pan so much. I hated that book. I liked Hook. Oh, yes, of course. But like Peter Pan, the book, I was just not a fan. I mean, I know it's a product of its time. When I came out disliking that book, I made so many people, mostly British people, I might add, mad at me. It's just like, how dare you read this out of context? Uh, I enjoyed the book at the time that I read it many, many years ago. But I, it always, I always focused on the fact that Peter Pan did not have a memory. Therefore, he would never grow up. Yeah, and I'm really curious how the Book of M plans to deal with that. If people lose all their memory, do they lose all their memories? Or just like social memories, like people? So I'm curious to see how it turns out. Space Bees, if you are looking forward to any of these or you have other books or movies or albums or whatever else that you're looking forward to, we'd love to hear about them. So that way we could put them on our list too. This is another sneaky way of me getting more wrecks. List. On brand. A Wrinkle in Time, directed by Ava DuVernay, is a 2018 adaptation of the classic children's novel by Madeleine Ellingol. It stars Storm Reed as Meg Murray, an awkward preteen who was struggling socially after the disappearance of her father's years before. When three mysterious figures arrive, they tell her that not only is her father possibly alive, she's the only one who can rescue him. What is your history with this book? I have no history with this book, apart from very recently. When was it celebrating its 50th anniversary? Five years ago? Something like that, yeah. So I got a copy of that, and I read it for the first time. Uh, I have no nostalgia element. I have no childhood memories of reading it. It wasn't part of my life at all until I moved to the UK, learned about it, and then I read it when it was celebrating its 50th anniversary, and I thoroughly, thoroughly hated it. Okay, right. No, I am exaggerating. I didn't hate it. I thought there were many things about it that were really good, especially the main character and uh, her relationship with her family, with her brother, and the whole fantasy aspect. And then in the end, it was all about religion. And then bleh! I know so many people love it, so I'm so sorry. 
In third grade, I checked this book out from the library. I had to have something to read, and it had a cool Pegasus thing on the cover with a rainbow. I'm like, this looks weird. What's this about? I proceeded to fall in love with it and check it out over and over and over and over until the librarians told me that I couldn't check it out because somebody else might want to read it. Oh, wow. So what did you love about it? I really identified with Meg. I also identified with Calvin. Meg is a socially awkward kid who has lost her father and Calvin is being, you know, abused by his family. It kind of became like a fantasy. Like Meg gets to go save her father from kid me. Always wanted to save her father, but she was a kid and she couldn't. She lived vicariously through Meg. And that's very sad. That's sadder than I meant it to be. This is so sad. I was always a super secular kid when I was, you know, really young, like very, very young, like five, four and five and six. People would be like, let's go to church. And I'm going to offend everybody who's religious, I guess. I'm really sorry, guys. Every time I would be like, hey, what are we celebrating here? They'd be like, God and Jesus. I'm like, who? Can I meet them? I literally once asked my Sunday school teacher because she was trying to give me some kind of lecture. And I remember this really, really well because I got in trouble for it. Like I popped up and I'm like, listen, I want to meet this guy. But basically she was all doing all this lecturing about God. And I was just like, who is this dude? I want to meet him. Listen, if I can't meet him, then why do I have to listen to what he has to say? Like, why do I got to follow these stupid laws? What's this about? This was me as a child. If you couldn't show me something, if you couldn't show me like evidence, I wasn't here for it. I was a skeptic from a very young age. So I was like embroiled in this Southern Baptist culture and yet none of it stuck. So when I came to A Wrinkle in Time, all the religious stuff I had been reading as fantasy for years. I do not have the faith necessary to read the religious stuff as anything but fantasy. That's a really interesting way of looking at it because it is the same thing for me, of course, except for the fact that what makes me angry about it, it's extrapolating from a religion in a way that creates a world in which the religion is the reality. I have a problem thinking of it as fantasy because I know that there will be people that won't see it like this. So I I kind of feel like it's forcing a worldview into my reality, which is what is my problem with all religious fantasies. I mean, Ellie Engel does have a very specific religious perspective. I'm really not up on it because, I mean, obviously you can you read the book and you can see it. It's very, very heavy on the Christian language and imagery and the core of the book. But of course, when I come to it, by the time I read it, as a, I want to say I was 10 or 11, 9 or 10, something like that. I had created this knowledge base based on my own reading because I had like I said my mom had kept a bunch of encyclopedias and like reference books or whatever in her house my whole childhood so I spent a lot of summers reading those so I already had this concept of like Christianity Islam Judaism like I had not a deep understanding I was nine so I'm not talking about like a scholarly perspective here so I had all these like conceptions of religion based on my on my read on my reading so whenever i read anything i guess i just kind of jumbled them all together to where sure the book is presenting an over like a a worldview it's like a very specific worldview but because i had had all this external context about religion it just never became about one of them it more it became more about a humanistic approach and it got even more specific when i read a Wind in the Door, which is a sequel to A Wrinkle in Time. I think A Wind in the Door might actually be more religious in a way, but differently. 
Because in A Wind in the Door, the villain of those, that book, they're called Ekthroy. And they go through the universe extinguishing light. You can very, very easily see where that's coming from in like a Christian perspective. My identity is really wrapped up in that second book. Like, for example, I have a domain name called ekthroy.org. And my partner has a domain, domain name named ekthroy.com. And that's how we met. That's where it comes from. Wow. The way you fight back against Ekthroy is whose process of chopping light out of the universe is unnaming somebody. The way you fight back a bit, a bit against that is naming somebody, claiming them, naming them, giving them their name, validating their identity, validating them as human beings. So that's always been the message that I took away from these books. Like even A Wrinkle in Time, even if the book isn't arguing that, it's always been about the power of the individual to change lives, to save people, to not leave anybody behind. That's just the way that I go about it. And I know that a lot of other people don't get that because a lot of other people don't have my context. And also I've had a lot longer to think about it. But I think that line of discussion takes us directly to it. I really think that's where it heads. It, the, the main like quote unquote villain of the book. Which was not such a thing in the movie. That was one of the main differences between the movie and the book. And in the book, it was a much bigger character. And it was basically non-existent. It was almost like a, more like a force than a being that was doing things. It just felt like this amorphous thing of darkness. And that made it less interesting. And perhaps one of the things that I miss the most in the adaptation. Yeah, I think DuVernay probably had her work cut out for her because I think the it in the book, I mean, the way the book handles it is like Meg comes in and Charles Wallace is sitting next to a giant brain. And obviously the movie couldn't handle it like that. Listen, it's 2018 and I don't think viewers could have handled it, even if it had been true to the book. I saw it in the negativity. And I think that's probably one of the ways that the movie is less strong than the book because the book makes it really clear that a lot of like the negativity and the meanness and those things make it stronger. And so in the movie you have like, there's a scene where Charles Wallace is sitting on a bench and he's overhearing some teachers like talk bad about their family. And you know, that's technically supposed to be it. The girl who's mean to Meg, it. And the movie doesn't really draw those lines. I mean, it tries at the end to make the connection, but like in the moment where you're experiencing that, you don't really get that people are choosing to engage in negativity. Yeah, so that that's my main point of concern with regards to how religion is, apl is applied to the book and the movie. And it comes with the question of the darkness and what it is and how it affects human beings. And basically my feeling reading and watching the movie is that the dark darkness is something that is external, that exists in the universe, and it spreads. And to me, that means that human beings basically don't have a choice anything that happens that is that human beings do that is wrong is because of the darkness they may have some sort of responsibility within them for maybe accepting it or welcoming it but it always feels to me like something that is external and if you then extrapolate to a Christian ideology you could see that the darkness is the devil so the source of all evil that is something that really doesn't sit well with me it removes personal responsibility 
exactly from people. And I'm like, what kind of bullshit is this? I thought the movie dealt with the fact that people were choosing to take actions. Like the adults in Charles Wallace's scene were choosing to talk about it like that. They didn't have to make that choice, but they did. The girl didn't have to choose to be mean. Meg didn't have to choose to hit her in the face with a ball. I sort of come to it in the movie itself. The book, I think, is more explicit about it like being a religious thing. I think the movie handles it differently. Yes, but it sort of doesn't. Especially if we think about Calvin. Calvin learns about the darkness. And so the first thing that he decides to do when he comes back home is that I am going to talk to my parents as though his light is going to counteract the darkness within his parents, his father, who is an abusive asshole. And I'm like, uh, this is a terrible message to give to kids they should not face their abusive parents because they could be killed. Yeah, that was my only complaint with the film. I was terrified. I remember being terrified for Calvin in the book and I was terrified for him in the movie. Somebody was having like, why wasn't it a giant brain? Why was this an amorphous thing? You could change it from a brain to like a dark space, which felt more like the electrical impulses of a brain. So you'll change that. But at the very end, you're going to send a young boy home to face his abusive father with the power of positivity. Exactly. Oh my God. That was a choice that they made. I'm sad about it, but Calvin's in the sequel, so he's fine. <laughs> Calvin's actually a very important person in the next book, A Wind in the Door. Have you ever read A Wind in the Door? No, and he was a bigger character in the book, too, than he was in the movie. I kind of didn't mind that. I like how they like forefronted Meg and Charles Wallace. Also, I just was here for Calvin looking at Meg like she on the moon the whole time. I was like, I'm here for it. I like this adaptation. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you about sending Calvin home to his father, going, I'm going to talk to him and it's going to be fun. Well, I don't know. I I had an abusive father. I'm not really sure you can reason with people like that, but okay. So I think anybody like writing fanfic for this, uh, Calvin's alive in the sequel. (laughs) But I also think that, that we have to think about our perspective versus a kid's perspective, which I think you raise a good point. We don't want to send a message to kids that they can resolve abusive relationships with... The power of positivity. Or the power of prayer. I guess you can even go there. No. In a lot of ways, this is a kid's movie. So we're coming at it from an adult perspective and not as children. We're going to see it way differently because we have way more context than kids who are still learning and growing as people do. The emotionally impactful moments for us are going to be, you know, very different than the emotionally impacting moments for kids. And a lot of people have complained about this fact. It's flawed because it doesn't work, quote unquote, work for adults. I don't know what that's about because it works fine for me. Yeah, for me too. I think the weird parts were is that DuVernay chose to like really dig into emotional moments. Like when Meg and her father reunite, like that hug and the crying that goes on forever. That felt odd to me. But then again, for a kid, that's not going to feel as weird. No, it didn't feel weird to me. It felt appropriate. The guy had been disappeared for a long time. I'm talking about like movie-wise. Like think about how fast movies move and how the speed of the narrative and how it works in most movies. But I just took issue with a lot of critics going, well, films should be made when adapting children's literature to cater to adults, too. It shouldn't just, just be for kids. It's going to be this big and this celebrated. It should, it should work for adults, too. Which I really don't understand why you would say this. Like, what, where are you coming from when this is your perspective? I know what makes a, an adult movie, but what makes a children's movie? And 
Why can't adults enjoy them for what they are? I don't understand that separation. It's flawed because it doesn't work for adults. Really? Because it worked for me and I'm an adult. I mean, but I mean, I'm also coming to it with a lot of nostalgia, but you're not coming to it with a lot of nostalgia and it still works for you too. And maybe they mean because that's very straightforward. Like it's very honest about what it's doing. Yes, but it has very mature content. I think one of the most mature things about the movie, even more than the book, is how the father is such a flawed, disappointing figure. And that's a reality that even maybe kids didn't even understand. And I think that's probably something that the adults would understand better than the kids watching that movie. But kids are really smart. And if you're a kid and your father disappoints you, maybe you don't have context to like understand it, but you know how it feels. Yeah. And I think the movie does a lot of straightforward work with feelings. I'm just not sure like adults are uncynical enough in our current political and social environment to take uncynical films, which I think this is an uncynical film, at its word. So maybe that's it. The mystery of film critics will never be solved. I will never understand most film critics. They're operating on a different level than I am. I didn't go to film school. I don't know. I have different needs. Just really quickly, what was your favorite part of the film? Probably Meg going back for Charles Wallace. But one of the things that I liked the most was the visuals. I thought it was a stunning movie. It was very pretty. It appealed to me in that way, I think, most of all. I loved huge Oprah. I was very into that. (laughs) I was very into how Oprah just played herself. I mean, she's obviously playing the character, but she was mostly just playing Oprah. I'm sure kids who are younger who didn't grow up watching Oprah hosting her TV show will not have that, you know, context. Yeah, like me. But for me, as an American who used to watch her talk show, I was just like, you're playing yourself. This is fabulous. I loved the costumes. The visuals were great, but the costumes... They were beautiful. Wow. And then, in the book, Meg has red hair, like curly red hair, and it's very unmanageable. And the movie changes this to how Meg, played by Storm Reed, is just very self-conscious about how her curly hair... It changes the context of the hair discussion from one of, like, a teenager in, you know, mid... 20th century to one of a black girl in 21st century America. The through line through the whole movie and the way DuVernay like adapted that particular part of the book, I was just like, oh god this is amazing. And I was so happy that she did that. It was really well adapted in that way to, to modernize and to make it relevant. And I mean, I was really glad she did that because one of the things about Meg's experience with her hair I also had that experience because my mom would also often cut my hair herself and I would go to school and it would be bad. Listen, hair is a hard thing for girls. Being a young girl in this culture, it's hard. And I was really, really glad that DuVernay took that and adapted it to the person that she cast and the story she was telling. I really love this film. I thought it was great. How many space bees are you going to give it, Anna? I think I want to give it four. I really, really liked it, despite my misgivings with the overall background of it. I was going to give it five space bees, but you had brought up your criticism of Calvin's storyline, and I was just like, oh, she's right. And so now I'm giving it four. You changed my mind. (laughs) We do that all the time.
love things. And now we're going to talk about some things we love. I have two because I read 18 books in April and I couldn't narrow it down. Really sorry. Oh my god. I read one book in April and one in May so far. So I have a problem. <laughs> I do have two recs. One of them is not a book. What are your recs, Anna? One of them is Cersei by Madeline Miller. It's not a sequel, but it's a companion novel to The Song of Achilles, which she published many years ago, and I loved it. That book was a retelling of the Odyssey and more specifically about the story of Achilles from the point of view of his lover, Patroclus. And it was a beautiful story. And this one is about Circe, the witch that lives on an island, has been exiled to an island by her father, who is Helios, the son. She lives there and she interacts with a bunch of heroes and heroines of um, Greek mythology, including Odysseus and Penelope. It's really good. It throws a lot of shade at Homer for being um, misogynistic shit. And in the end, there was a romance that I was so on board of it. I saw it coming, obviously, because I know what happens to Cersei and, and who she ends up with. And I was like, this is not going to work. But it worked so well because she wrote it so well. The other thing that I recommend is this documentary that I caught on Netflix called Wild Wild Country. And it's about how in the 80s, this... Indian guru called Bhagwan and who eventually came to be known as Osho. I don't know if you know who Osho is, but I grew up in Brazil and everybody used to read books by Osho. And basically it's a story about he migrated, he bought a piece of land in the middle of Oregon so that he could create a commune of free sex, free spirited people living there in a beautiful society that worked so well, but then, of course, it's in the middle of Christian Oregon. And as you can imagine, things went to shit, and I didn't know anything about it. And the documentary is excellent, too, because it shows everything that is happening in America right now with ra racism and xenophobia, and it's a mind-blowingly good documentary. What are your recs? I have two recs. The first is The Expanse, a TV show that was on sci-fi, but sci-fi canceled it because sci-fi is a betrayer. I knew better. I knew better than to trust this channel, which has broken my heart multiple times, but I did it. And now here we are. I'm so upset because people complain all the time. There's not enough women of color. There's not enough men of color. There's not enough queer characters. The Expanse has all of these things. What a shame. It's really good. I really enjoyed the show. It's very clever. I think maybe it's a little bit slow, but I can live with that. I really think that if you like science fiction, if you like diverse casts, you want to check out seasons one and two and three of The Expanse. And then I'm also going to write Artificial Condition by Martha Wells. It's amazing. In Artificial Condition, Murderbot makes up friend it's like enemies to besties in the space of one novella there's other stuff going on murderbot obviously gets caught up with humans again and has to save some asses and does some research into their past otherwise mostly it's about the great friendship i loved this novella i love this series i'm so glad there's two more Space bees, 
I'm always asking you for recommendations and I'm going to do so again right now. Feel free to go to our website and fill out our rec form. Renee is super nice, so you definitely should do that to make her happy. To check out the artist who made our show art, head to justera.tumblr.com where most of Era's art lives. If you need help understanding us because we talked faster than the speed of light, you can! There are lots of transcripts at fangirlhappyhour.com created by the amazing Susan. There's more to our website than transcripts, too. You can, as I requested earlier, leave us a recommendation. You can send in a question for an upcoming Question Tuesday episode or subscribe to our very cool newsletter. That's at fingerhappyhour.com. You can also ask the Google by tapping our show name into a search bar. And if you are into book giveaways, you should definitely follow us on Twitter at Fangirl Podcast, where I'll be giving away some books over the next few weeks. You are a beautiful piece of stardust, so drinking some water will keep your shine bright. Hug your loved ones. And I'll just leave it at there. Thanks for listening, Space Bees. See you next episode. I'm laughing, but no one can see me. <laughs> what? Anna, you're, you're cute. Those, okay, Renee, use words. Use, like, form them and put them out of your mouth. You've been doing this for 35 years now. You can keep, you continue to do this. Words. Noises come out here. You are so young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are, <laughs> the image is stopped with you with your eyes closed, like you were in prayer. Yes. It's on Netflix. It's on Netflix? Yeah. I think you mean that galley. Too many things were named Net. I do mean that galley. <laughs> Obviously. And how much we really love the new Peter Parker and his relationship with Daddy Tony. That sounded dirty, but it was totally not intended as such. <laughs> <laughs>